Uh, welcome to the show. Uh, we're speaking with uh, Karen Terry, who's a UCI alum, who's the lead uh, researcher on this uh, report that just came out last week, uh, this week, uh, this past week, on uh, sexual abuse by Catholic priests. Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, did Were you interested in studying this issue when you were at Irvine? <laughs> I was not interested in studying this issue specifically when I was at Irvine. This is an interest or my interest in studying sexual offending and sexual victimization developed when I was in graduate school. And uh, while I was there, I studied sex offenders who were participating in treatment programs in prisons. Did you visit any prisons uh, or jails here? I did not. I did not visit any while I was at UC Irvine. Uh, I did my PhD at Cambridge and spent time at three different prisons in England working with sex offenders there who were going through treatment programs. Who were your mentors in in school, either at Cambridge or at Irvine? Well, my dissertation supervisor at Cambridge was Adrian Grounds, but I worked closely with a number of faculty who were there. And while I was um, at uh, UC Irvine, I had uh, I worked I, d- I didn't work very closely with many of the criminology um, faculty in terms of research, um, but had a number of the faculty members as professors while I was there. Because you were undergrad, so that's correct. Yeah, I was right. an undergrad then. Right. Um, so um, you've been doing. I I, I recall. Uh, uh, when I read this report, I also looked up some of your other reports earlier, your research, mm-hmm. and you did a literature review um, that was um, with pretty comprehensive. Uh, right. So a lot of it got incorporated into this report, also. Right. So we've done we've released two reports related to uh, child sexual abuse by Catholic priests. The first one uh, was released in two thousand four, and that was. Uh, a study on the nature and scope of the problem of child sexual abuse by Catholic priests. And that also had a very extensive uh, annotated bibliography and literature review attached to it. Uh, We did a supplementary analysis as well of that data that was released in 2006. So the causes and context report that was released last week uh, is actually uh, the second study that I've conducted here with colleagues and this one aimed to understand why the abuse crisis occurred. So are you blaming the sexual liberation movement of the 60s? Uh, <laughs> according to media reports, that seems to be what we're saying. But in fact, what we're <laughs> saying is not that that caused uh, the problems, but what we're saying is that uh, the rise in abuse behavior uh, by priests is consistent with other types of uh, behavior at that time. So it also correlates to the rise in criminal behavior, a variety of types of criminal behavior. It also uh, is consistent with the uh, rise in um, experimentation and drug use and changing drug markets, as well as other types of social behaviors like uh, increasing uh, divorce rates, premarital sex, and so forth. So while we're saying it's not, those are not things that that caused uh, this abuse crisis, but the patterns are consistent. And so what we're essentially saying is that uh, the abusers in the Catholic Church um, are very similar to sex offenders in the general population, those who have abused children in the general population, and those patterns um, have some consistency. 
So you you are saying it's more an op, op, uh, opportunity offense, right? Yes. Well, what we're saying is also um, that there is a complex interaction of factors um, that led to this rise in abuse behavior at this particular point in time. And so we also chronicled um, how seminary education changed over a period of time. We looked at who the um, individuals were who were entering seminary in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and looked at how well prepared they were uh, to be in the priesthood. Um, uh, And what we found is that the seminaries did not really prepare men for um, to appropriately live a life of chaste celibacy. And there were also um, a number of uh, men who entered the priesthood at this time who had vulnerabilities, such as intimacy deficits and emotional congruence with adolescence and issues like that. And it's those men who are at risk to abuse, um, and we did see a rise in those abusive behaviors. What's wrong with uh, identifying with adolescents? I mean, they're pretty young themselves. That's true. And I think it's important to understand um, that this is also common of many sex offenders in the general population and isn't confined just to priests who abused adolescents. So there are, um, if you if you look at um, sex offenders in the general population who have abused minors, often there are people who are very well known to the minors. So it could be could be parents, it could be neighbors, uh, teachers, coaches, babysitters, and so forth. And um, often what happens is they develop uh, these nurturing, mentoring relationships, and eventually that evolves into an inappropriate type of relationship where they have cognitive distortions and begin to view uh, the person inappropriately and begin a relationship with that person and excuse um, or make excuses and justifications for that behavior. So again, what we see with priests who abuse minors is very similar to what we see uh, in the general population with sex offenders who abuse minors. I was impressed that you uh, were careful in defining terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, you uh, uh, in your study, you tr- distinguish between pedophilia and uh, other attractions to mm-hmm. people uh, who are pubescent or uh, adolescent. Right. And, um, well, uh, yeah. you know, there's been some confusion about how we define pedophilia in the report, and I think it's really important to add a clarification about um, our conclusion about pedophilia. So we looked at data from two different sources uh, to come up with a conclusion that that pedophilia uh, or that the majority of priests who had allegations of abuse were not pedophiles. And we said that 5% of priests who um, abused children from 1950 to 2010 could be defined as pedophiles. And we made that that determination based on clinical files. So we had we gathered uh, a substantial amount of data from treatment centers uh, where priests who had allegations of abuse were treated, and clinicians made clinical diagnoses of um, of five percent of these men in two unique samples of priests who were treated, um, and called five percent of those pedophiles. And so when we said five percent of priests who abused children were pedophiles, that's where we got that information. However, that information um, was similar to what we saw in the Nature and Scope study. 
Now, in the Nature and Scope study, we did not have any diagnosable information. So what we were looking at was patterns of behavior by priests who abuse minors. And pedophilia is characterized by uh, recurrent, intense, sexually arousing fantasies about prepubescent children. And uh, this behavior needs to be persistent and distressful to the individual in order for someone to be diagnosed a pedophile. Um, but what we had seen was that there were a lot of adolescents who were abused, and we wanted to know if this was also a problem related to aphebophilia, which is not a diagnosable disorder in the DSM, but it is a condition that's characterized by a persistent sexual attraction to adolescents and usually adolescent boys. So in the Nature and Scope study, we tried to distinguish this as best we could and look at minors who were uh, under the age of 11 and those who were over the age of 13 who were abused to see what kind of patterns we could identify. And what we found there was that very few of the priests um, had persistent behavior uh, against uh, minors uh, who could be considered prepubescent over that period of time. And uh, that was something that actually led us to hypothesize that clinical files would show um, low rates of pedophilia in this population. So uh, you also distinguish between uh, hebephilia, mm -hmm. which is uh, attraction to pubescence. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so, so most of the hebephilia and yeah. hebephilia are not in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Uh, there's really a variation on how these. Um, how these conditions or behaviors are defined. And so we do go into detail in the report about the various definitions that researchers have given those right. conditions. And uh, the most consistent uh, definitions that we've seen are that hebophilia is an attraction to um, children, who, you know, pubescent children versus a pubophilia, which is uh, post-pubescent. So does uh, most of the priests that you uh, had and that you uh, looked at, you studied, uh, most of them were attracted to adolescent boys? Uh, that is correct. Over, so, long, over so the long term, the majority right. of victims were between the ages of 11 and 14, and the next largest number were between uh, 15 to 17. And um, the majority of um, the majority of priests had uh, abusive behavior against those who were at, at that 13, 14, 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old age range. How does, um, how does the varying age of consent laws, say, in Europe affect uh, this behavior? I know you didn't look at European mm -hmm. uh, behaviors, but, you know, in some countries, the age of consent laws are lower. Mm -hmm. So do you think that, does that affect uh, this behavior? Well, I don't think um, I don't think it's important to focus on age as much as it is uh, the level of development, um, and that would be physical and emotional development and psychosexual development. And so, uh, what's important to focus on is whether the um, the offender or the priest has a persistent sexual attraction to someone who's prepubescent, or has a persistent sexual attraction to someone who's pubescent or postpubescent, as opposed to uh, someone who is an age mate or someone who's also an adult. And, um, you know, and so it's also important to note that even if someone uh, sexually abuses a child who's, 
who's prepubescent, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be diagnosed as a pedophile. It depends on if they have those persistent sexual attraction to uh, prepubescent children. And the reason this is important is not to downplay the sexual abuse of all children of all ages, but to better understand what the best type of prevention technique is for, for preventing this, future, uh, this behavior in the future. You're also saying that gay identity doesn't seem to have any correlation. In our, in our data, there was no significant relationship between uh, homosexual identity and uh, sexual abuse of children. And so we, uh, we looked at, again, uh, clinical files where we had extensive sexual history of uh, priests who had uh, been treated for abusing children. And we looked at their behavior uh, before going into seminary, in seminary, and after seminary. And what we found is that those who had same-sex behavior uh, before seminary or in seminary were not significantly more likely to abuse children than those who had not had that behavior. So it was, uh, but is most of the behavior you study, I looked at your report and it seems like you were covering mostly uh, priests who have sex with male children uh, rather than uh, female, right? Yes, so the majority of victims were male, about 81% of the victims uh, were male. And so uh, we did want to know whether homosexuality uh, was linked to this behavior or whether it was more likely to be related to the situations in which the children were abused. And we found that um, uh, most priests uh, who abused children had more access to males during that time period when there were more um, boys abused than girls. So for instance, um, we were looking at the period of 1950 to 2010. In that time, it was far more likely for boys to be serving um, as altar boys, uh, for boys to go on retreats with the priests, for boys to spend time alone with the priests, and they didn't have as much access to girls. And and so that is, you know, so access and opportunity is certainly a significant factor in victim choice. The, the table, one table you showed, uh, this gender difference, uh, showed that it seemed to be uh, the percentage seems to rise for women so that now it's for girls mm -hmm. so that it seems to be more equal now. Do you s suspect since 2002 it would go up to there'll be more women uh, involved, uh, girls involved? Well, there are boys? more girls now involved certainly in the church and so there's going to be uh, more equal access to girls at this time. There's altar girls now, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So, um, so do you think that in future, if this continues, would more girls be the be the people the the, the I, it, targets? It, it, I guess it's hard to predict, um, and I think that uh, it's important to recognize that um, the number of abuse situations each year um, that are being reported each year now are very low compared to what they were at those times of peak abuse. And do do, do you think the church is screening out gay priests right now? Um, I think that there uh, certainly has been mandates to uh, not bring in those who are identified as homosexual, but I think that goes beyond just the issue of child sexual abuse and goes to um, other issues related to um, theology in the Catholic Church, and that's not something that we addressed in our study. So you didn't, you didn't, um, uh, you did look at some of the data relating to whether they identify as gay, right? Certainly, yeah. Yeah, and most of the the priests did not. Well, 
um, we did not do a general survey of the Catholic Church um, to determine how many men in the priesthood today are gay. However, there are a number of other studies that have looked at that issue. And um, although I can't give you an exact percentage because it's going to depend on methodology used and so forth, right. what is a general trend that we've seen is that there are more gay men uh, in seminary and in the priesthood now than there were in the past. So this has increased since the 1970s, 1980s. And yet we've also seen at the same time a decrease in the amount of child sexual abuse and and also the percent of boys abused. So that certainly isn't, again, to say that that's a causal factor, um, but just to say that it's more evidence um, to show that there is not much support for um, the idea of, of homosexuality as a driving factor for abusing children. Uh, are there more? I should also point yeah. out that this is consistent with um, the current research on this issue for sex offenders in the general population. Are there more gay men now, or are they more gay, openly gay uh, priests now? Well, it's very difficult to, to know how to answer that, and I'm <laughs> sure it's uh, a combination of those factors. Uh, the, some of the feedback from uh, the media seems to be quoting uh, survivors groups that argue that the AP, APA mm -hmm. definition of onset of puberty was different from the mm -hmm. way you used it. Well, and this is why it's important to clarify where we got our information. So... Um, so in the initial media reports, it said that we came to that conclusion about pedophilia based only on our nature and scope study, uh, which only had behaviors and not diagnosable information. But in fact, we got that conclusion from clinical files where there were clinical diagnoses of pedophilia based on the DSM diagnosis that's used. So what we found is that Based on those um, clinical treatment files, 5% of priests who were treated during that time period were diagnosed as pedophiles. And again, that's using the standard clinical definition. So that was a mischaracterization of our research in the media. Well, the media tends to conflate uh, these issues. They they call all, this, all these priests pedophiles, right? Right, right. And, and I think it's important to understand that not every person who abuse as a child as a pedophile, and again, pedophilia is a diagnosable disorder. And, you know, once more, it's not, it's in, we're certainly not in any way trying to diminish anyone else who was abused by priests. We're just trying to understand what was the driving motivation for these priests to abuse. Uh, you you uh, mentioned in your conclusions that there's a substantial impact of media on the reporting of this. Mm -hmm. uh, so are you recommending they don't uh, cover this as much? No, I think that the more they cover this, the more attention there is to this issue and the more people that might come forward and hopefully, um, if they've been abused, report that abuse. But they might still confuse or conflate these terms, right? But, <laughs> uh, I mean, again, those are two separate issues. I mean, I think that um, the media attention uh, that was given to this problem in 2002 is actually what led to this huge influx of reporting, and that's how we got to know more about... Um, the actual nature and scope of this problem. So you're saying that the reporting was about these activities that happened actually in decades before right. some of that. That's and correct. So and I think what's it, very important to understand is that we said the bulk of these cases um, happened many years ago, and as such, that crisis of the actual abuse cases 
is an historical problem. However, we also mentioned that the response to abuse is ongoing, and uh, we actually dedicate a substantial amount of the report to chronicling what the um, Catholic Church's response was to abuse claims from 1985 to the present day. And so, again, I think that's a very, very important part of understanding this whole phenomena. So it's, it's understanding um, the abuse cases themselves as well as the responses to it. Uh, some of the critics argue that you're too generous to the Catholic Church. Uh, we we did this research, uh, we gathered the data, and we presented a comprehensive and objective report. We have no allegiance whatsoever to the Catholic Church, um, and uh, we simply reported um, on the data that we collected. And I think, you know, I, I, something else that's very important to point out is that this is a really complex issue, and it's important to read um, the report in its entirety and uh, to really understand the interaction of these social factors with individual factors as well as these um, factors related to the response by diocesan leadership. Yeah, you didn't look at um, the punishment, I guess, or the you know people that were serving sentences. Did you look at that uh, in terms of the term, the term of uh, jail or prison term? That we, we did look at that in our Nature and Scope study. Oh, okay. Um, so, so, but there are very few um, priests with allegations of abuse who went through the criminal justice system. And one of the reasons for that oh. is because uh, many of these cases were reported decades after they occurred and the statute of limitation had expired. In, in some states, there's, it's uh, it dates from the time of recall, right, of the abuse. So a, a victim who remembers the re, uh, well, abuse can uh, all it triggers. All states are different in terms yeah. of their uh, statute of limitations and, and length of time you have to report. And so in many cases, um, the the individuals um, reported the abuse 20, 30, 40 years um, after the abuse happened. On the uh, DSM, uh, there's a move to uh, revise that uh, to DSM-5, right? Uh, what what are your recommendations for that? Or do you see any uh, move to change the the DSM in this regard? That's not my specific area oh, of expertise, okay. and so I would leave that to psychologists. So in terms of criminology, do you see that the sentences are appropriate? Or, I mean, for the ones that are serving terms, uh, what, what do you see? Well, yeah. again, I think it's... Um, it's difficult to say um, entirely because you have some very serious offenders uh, whose offenses were not brought to light until many years after they happened. So, um, you know, and so many of these individuals were um, removed from ministry, sent to treatment. Uh, many are um, are no longer in ministry today, and that is the only sentence that's really available to them. Um, again, what I would say is that the priests who sexually abuse minors are very much like sex offenders in the general population. And so there are some that have committed some very serious acts of abuse, and uh, the punishment uh, that's given, if there is one, should be appropriate to that. Uh, how was this study funded? It was funded from a variety of sources. There was some funding from the USCCB, as well as, which is the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, as well as many other foundations. And what's important is that even though the USCCB gave us some funding, they were not directly um, 
overseeing any of the research that we did uh, for this project. So this was, um, we did this, this research independently and, um, and we came to our own conclusions and we had uh, no pressure from the church whatsoever to come to any particular conclusions. Did, did they edit your report? Absolutely not. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Karen Terry. Uh, for this uh, analysis of your own report. Thank you. Thank you.